I'm Pastor Paul, lead pastor here at Four Oaks Killarne. If you have your Bibles, I'm going to invite you to open to Romans chapter 15. Believe it or not, we are here as we come down the home stretch of Romans. We're at the end of what we would call the last major theological section of this amazing book. And where we've been here in Romans 14 and now Romans 15 is sort of orbiting around this big general theme or topic of what do we do when Christians disagree? Now, I'm not sure about you, but that seems kind of relevant um, in light of the age that we're living in, not to mention the last two to three years where, at least in my recent memory, there's never been a time where we as Christians, evangelicals, folks who are so united around the gospel, we share the same doctrinal convictions, statements of faith, confessional standards. Never have we been so unified on those things, but seemingly so disunited on a whole host of issues and just fill in the blank, right? Politics, schooling, education. We go to vote on Tuesday. How do we engage the culture, food and drink, medical decisions, COVID protocols? And of course, all of these differences are only amplified and broadcast all the more through social media. So this seems like a particularly relevant topic to me. But of course, the reality, we know this, is that the church has always had to wrestle through these kinds of disagreements. And so it was 2,000 years ago for the church in Rome. You had two predominant groups there, Gentile Christians, Jewish Christians, and they had come to completely different convictions and different practices and decisions about a couple of key spiritual issues for that time. You see, there was one group, and they were from the Jewish background, and they were reared in the Old Testament, and they were taught that to be obedient to God, to honor God, um, it was important to obey certain dietary restrictions. It was also important to observe particular holy days or parts of the religious calendar. For them, it's what they were born with. They were raised that way. They were taught that. And even when they became Christians, those were practices they continued to carry with them in their spiritual walk. On the other hand, you had Gentile Christians, and it was the wild, wild west for those guys, right? They, didn't, they weren't Jewish. They weren't from that background. They were free in Christ. They were set free by the gospel. And they're like, why are you guys doing these sort of silly observances and, and, and practices related to holy days and what you eat and all those sorts of things? And, and this resulted in no small amount of division in the church in Rome. In fact, it's one of the reasons that Paul is writing to them. There was all sorts of hurt feelings. There was bruised consciences. There was disrupted fellowship. There was spiritual suspicion on one hand, spiritual elitism on the other, all by people who were ostensibly united around the first 11 chapters of this book on the essentials of the gospel. And this is what prompts Paul at the beginning of chapter 14 to write to them about what he calls opinions. Now, the word in the Greek is literally disputable matters. 
adiaphora, as the reformers call it, matters of indifference. And, and by matters of indifference, we don't mean that these aren't important issues. If they weren't important, guess what? Paul probably wouldn't be writing about them. When we say that they're matters of indifference, what we mean is that they were not central to the gospel. They were not central to doctrinal truth and orthodoxy and the faith once for all delivered to the saints. These were matters about which Christians had very strong but very different convictions about how to do things, which should sound familiar. And the way that Paul addresses these two groups in the church in Rome is by referring to them as the strong and the weak. Now, let's understand what those mean and don't mean. When Paul says this, talks about them in terms of the strong and the weak, he doesn't, he's not talking about a description of their character, okay? That there, there was people of strong character and people of weak character, or people of strong conviction or weak conviction. That, that's not what he means. He's talking here about theological maturity. You see, the strong were those who, because of their knowledge of the scriptures, because they understood that these Old Testament laws had been fulfilled in Christ, because they had a strong conscience as it relates to what God calls us as New Testament believers to do, they said, you know what, everything God's created is to, and is made is to be eaten, enjoyed with thanksgiving. There's, there's nothing off limits to the people of God in terms of what we eat. Now, for some of you, there should be some foods that are off limits to you, right? But not for religious purposes. And, and the strong were those who were like, God's made everything. He's made all the days. We, we don't have to observe the Sabbath in the exact same way as our Jewish brothers did. But the weak were those who it was a violation of their conscience to do otherwise. For them, it was so tied in because of their background their culture, their upbringing, their families, that for them to do otherwise would have been being disobedient to God. Now, here's what's interesting about this. I find this fascinating. Paul nowhere condemns either party. He, he nowhere says, go thou and sin no more. You be them or them be you. He, he, know, he nowise does that. He simply tells them, right, gives them instructions about how they are to relate together in the body of Christ as weaker and stronger brothers. And a good sort of summary statement we find in Romans 14. Let me quote two verses here for you. I think this pretty accurately captures everything that we've been looking at the past couple of weeks. Paul says this, Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has welcomed him. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. Well, what's a layman's version of that? I think here's what Paul is simply saying. Hey, you who are strong, you who are free in Christ, who you, those of you who have a clear conscience about doing these different things, don't hold your brothers, your weaker brothers in contempt. Don't make fun of them. Don't look down your nose on them. Don't disdain them for their lack of a, a free conscience like you have. Then on the other hand, he says to the weak, hey, hey, you who are weak, don't judge your brother. 
Don't play the Holy Spirit or God in their heart. Each of you, each of these groups, you have to give a personal account of yourself before the Lord in good conscience, kept by faith, centered upon Christ, all part of the same team, welcome each other. Now, here's what's interesting as we come to our text this morning. I think it's very curious. Paul seemingly could have stopped right there, right? He's, he's kind of, it seems like he's made his point. He said all that needs to be said. He's basically saying, hey guys, live at peace, do your own thing, go about your business, don't judge each other. But Paul doesn't end his instructions there. You see, I think it's because Paul wants us to understand the why of what we're doing. You see, for Paul, this is much larger than simply giving us a list of best practices that we can observe together in the body of Christ. For Paul, it's, it's, it's so much more than simply us getting caught up in what we can and can't do. Pastor Paul, tell me this. Can I do this? Can I not do that? Or I want to do this. What's the best way for, for, me, to, for me to do that? If that's where we terminate this discussion and this study, folks, we've missed the whole point. Because Paul, what Paul is going to tell us is that by the way we work these things out together as the body of Christ is going to be a sign and a display of the gospel. The way that we love and serve each other as a body of Christ among our differences is going to be the, one of the primary ways that the world sees the gospel of Christ displayed. You know, Paul says in Ephesians 5 that the reason God gave us marriage was to give us a picture of Christ and the church. In other words, there should be something about Christian marriages is that as other Christians and the world look at them, that they see Jesus. They see his love for his bride. They see the bride's uh, respect and submission to, to their Lord. They, they, should see, they should see the Christian gospel on display. Paul says the exact same thing when it comes to the differences of strong and weak in the body, that we should be able to look at our corporate life together the way that we engage, love, care for each other, and see the gospel on display. That's Paul's central concern, and we're going to see that this morning. So we're going to be in Romans 15, 1 through 13. I'm going to read the Word of God. If you can, I'm going to invite you to stand. And we do this just not out of ceremony, but it's just a, it's a, it's a statement for us that we all stand under the Word of God, that we're all submitted to that word and that authority, preacher included, and we're asking for his help. So let's look at Romans 15, beginning in verse 1. Paul says, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together 
you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy as it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come. Even who, he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Let's pray. Father, we begin each of these times in your word in the same way, and that's with a humble posture of asking you to speak to us. Lord, we don't stand above you. We don't stand above your word. We are not the judge of you. Lord, we belong to you. And now we're asking for your help this morning to show us how, how do we love and serve and care for and welcome each other in a way that displays the glory of Christ and the gospel to a world that desperately needs to see it. So, Father, we ask these things in your Son's name. In Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Please take your seats. Just two points this morning, very straightforward. We're going to, first of all, look at the goal of Christian liberty. What's it all about? Why is, why is Paul giving us these instructions? And number two, the ground of Christian liberty. Where do we look to for our model, ultimately, for the way we are to do these things? All right, let's talk about the goal of Christian liberty first. Look at verse 1. Paul says, We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. It's important to note, Paul is directly addressing the strong believers in the church in Rome. And, and the strong, of course, again, are those who are theologically mature. They have convictions that rise principally from God's word. They're not primarily a product of their culture or their background. Now, understand, church, none of us can fully have a blank slate when it comes to these things. All of us are imprinted by our families, our backgrounds, our culture, the era that we live in. But the longer we walk with Christ and the more that we study God's word and exhort one another and grow in maturity, the more that our conscience will be biblically grounded, not culturally grounded. The more that our conscience will be informed by the scriptures and not by virtue of some sort of cultural family baggage that we are sort of dragging along behind us. So that's who Paul is addressing and that's who receives his primary exhortation here. Now, let me just say for a moment, and I'm going to kind of speak just from my pastoral perspective, bird's eye view, about who we are, Foros Kalarn as a church family. I would say on the whole, we are a quote-unquote strong church. Not strong without exception. There's individual differences and all those sorts of things, but I mean Generally speaking, I, I think we are a, a church that's strong in our theological convictions. I think the roots go deep. I think there is a posture on the part of our church family to know and study the Word of God. 
I don't think we are an overly legalistic sort of culture here. I'm sure in 30 years, our kids will tell us all the ways we mess them up. I totally get that, right? But I think by and large, we have developed a healthy, mature conscience as a church. In fact, let me go much further and say, my guess is that as you've studied this passage with us, you've probably more often than not identified yourself as one of the strong. That's, oh, that's me definitely, Pastor Paul. I, I feel like I'm, I'm grounded in God's word, and I believe I do what I do because of my convictions in God's word, and I'm not doing it because of this, that, or the other. My conscience is clear. Now, if that's true, and if the Apostle Paul was here, here's what I think he would say. I would think he would say, congratulations, Four Oaks. Way to be strong. Now, I have a special charge for you. It's kind of like asking your, your kids who, who they think is the best at doing a particular chore, right? And the kid that raises his hand, you're saying, congratulations, you are now in charge, right? It's the same thing that happens when one of you comes up and asks us as pastors, hey, you know, it would be great if someone started a ministry doing this. And what is our response always going to be? We sign you up, right? Okay. That's, that's what Paul is doing. He's saying, you think you're the strong? Awesome. I've got a special charge for you. And here is his special charge. Look back at verse 1. We have an obligation as the strong to bear with the failings of the weak. Now, that word obligation, it does not mean option. He's not saying, four oaks, you have the, you have the option of whether you want to bear with the weak or not. No, no, the word means to be bound, to owe, to be indebted to. Paul is telling us that those who are mature in their faith have a special responsibility, please hear this, in relationship to other believers. And again, I look out on this group this morning and I see just a wealth of biblical wisdom. I see so many of you who have walked for so many years so faithfully before the Lord, and I am incredibly thankful. I think God has given us an incredible stewardship. But here's what we have to remember as in terms of being the strong. Now, what I'm about to say is true in Christian context as well as non-Christian context. And, and here, here's the principle. The more mature stronger, knowledgeable, wise, experienced, well-resourced that you are, the greater responsibility you have for others who depend upon you. Guys, this is a universal truth. It's true for, for parents. Oh, you know it, don't you, parents? You know, it's true for leaders, for bosses, for coaches, for professors, for teachers, for community group leaders, those who are more mature in their faith have an extra measure of responsibility to those who are less mature. Guys, there is a call always to the strong to be the adult in the room, to be the non-anxious presence, to take it on the chin as necessary for the good of the whole. As I was reminded of this a number of years ago, many moons ago, I was mentoring a young pastor, and we were in a cohort group together. 
And this is when we did all of our communication via, via email, which sounds brontosaurus-like now, right? And there was this email exchange going around, and this young man that was in the group was saying some things that I thought were rather foolish, okay? I thought they were rather immature, and so I did what came naturally to me. I proceeded to tell him about his immaturity and foolishness to the whole email thread, right? Now, let me just say, he was being foolish. I, 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 I stand by that to this day. But what I was doing by entering into the ring is what Proverbs says not to do. Don't answer a fool according to his own folly. And now, because the reality was, now there was not just one fool in the gutter, there were two. And I remember one of the more senior members of that cohort group just sent me one of those kind emails off to the side, offline exchange, and said, Paul, this is not becoming of you. Be the older brother. And I remember thinking, that is, that is, no, I didn't think it at the time. I was quite offended at the time because I was the weaker brother, right? But I think he was telling me what Paul is telling us, and I do include me, us, the strong, to do here. Paul says to bear with the weak. Now, the word bear means to actively lift someone up. The word bear does not mean tolerate. It does not mean to merely endure or to be long-suffering, right? See, long-suffering is what many of you will do in three weeks when you go to Thanksgiving dinner, and you will see those relatives you see one time a year, right? And you always have to prepare your kids for these things. Just sit at the little kid's poker card table to the side, okay? Don't whine, don't complain, endure. The Detroit Lions will be losing to somebody on the Thanksgiving Day game. Just, just play your iPad, okay? It'll be over before you know it. Just, just endure like a good soldier of Christ. Does that resonate with anybody, right? That's not what Paul means here. That's not what it means to bear with. To bear with means to actively serve, care for, and please your brother. Now, what does Paul mean when he talks about pleasing our brothers? Guys, there's a right kind of pleasing and a wrong kind of pleasing. There, there would be what I would call flattery versus biblical pleasing. Now, flattery is not about serving the other person. Flattery is about you. Flattery is about ingratiating yourself enough to someone that they will do what you want them to do for you. It's about laying it on thick in order to sort of manipulate them to get them to do what you want them to do. And in fact, this was exactly what was happening in the church in Galatia, remember? Peter, who was ostensibly supposed to be the stronger brother, had decided he was not going to share table fellowship, dietary laws, right, same thing. He was not going to share table fellowship with the Gentile Christians because the head honchos from Jerusalem had come down and said, well, you don't need to be associating with those lowly Gentiles, right? So Peter, in an effort to appease or please those brothers, to be accepted by them, shunned the Gentile Christians. And what does Paul say to them? Paul does not make a suggestion to Peter, right? 
What was done publicly, he calls out publicly and says, Peter, what you're trying to do is to please men. If I was trying to please men, I wouldn't be preaching the gospel. So in that context, to please men clearly is an unrighteous, selfish, self-oriented sort of thing that uses others to get what we want. That's not, that's not the way Paul means pleasing here. What Paul means here about pleasing our neighbor is looking out for their best interest as the weaker brother. Knowing, now this is really hard, that if I insist upon my rights and my freedoms right now, this is going to hurt this brother. But if I can give up my rights, I can serve him. See, this is why I said that, that if this discussion merely terminates on the best practices for the local church about how to practice our Christian freedoms, that very easily is a slippery slope that becomes very self-oriented. It becomes very manipulative. It's about doing what I want to do. I've already decided what my Christian freedoms are, Pastor Paul, and I intend to exercise them hell-be-bound, right? That's not what Paul's saying. Paul's saying you bear with one another in order to serve them, love them, lift them up as the weaker brother, even if it means giving up your rights. Not a pastor friend across the pond and his church was having divisions around, what else? Worship music, okay? And it seemed that the younger generation in the church identified a particular style of worship music with spiritual connection and vibrancy and being connected with God and were filled with the Spirit. They thought the church's current style was old and stale and old-fashioned and irrelevant. Now, let me just tell you, I think when we talk about church musical styles, these things are adiaphora. They're matters of opinion. They're disputable. They're indifferent. I didn't say unimportant, right? So if Pastor Joe comes out and leads us in a series of German polkas for worship, I'm going to say that wasn't sinful, but it was probably really stupid, right? We, we're, we're, but we, so we're not saying they're unimportant, right? What we're saying is they're a matter of indifference as it relates to the fact that God is present and can be worshipped meaningfully in a multitude of various ways in a variety of contexts with various styles. So saying that, what was my friend's admonition to the younger generation in the church? And you'll know what side of this you're on by how you resonate or don't resonate with what he did. He could have crushed that younger generation, right? He could have said, you guys are immature. He could have said, this is my church. By gosh, we're not going to have that in my church. This is the way we've done it. We are, this is, we, we're, we're faithful. We've been doing it this way. That's not what he said at all. What he did is that he addressed the older generation, the stronger generation. And he appealed to them. He said, you guys, you know, you older generation, that God is not present more in one style of music than another. Your weaker brothers just don't know that. So guess what? Stand down. Stand down, older brother. Step aside for the sake of your brother. Give space to reach 
more people. It's just music. It's just music. So seek to build your brother up to please him. Now, let me just say this as an aside. There are currently many churches who are perishing, dying, and withering on that very issue or similar issues because the strong won't give way to the weak. They won't serve them. And in the process, you know what the strong are showing? They're really not strong after all. They're standing, they're, they're obstacles to, to their brother's spiritual growth. So, so what's Paul's end game here? That, that's the question we're asking under this point. What's the ultimate goal of all of this? Look at verses 5 through 7. I think this gives a perfect summary of what Paul is after here in addressing the strong and the weak. He says, may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. One voice. This is Paul's vision. Not one opinion, not one perspective, certainly one gospel, one set of doctrinal truths, absolutely. But not, not all the same opinion, but simply one voice. And the way that he describes this is he says, welcome one another. Now that word welcome, you've heard me mention this before, it literally means to take into oneself. It could be used to refer to the, to the act of eating a particular dish or drinking a particular drink. It's like when you, when you look over that delicacy or that glass of wine and it smells so good, it's so attractive, and you, and you kind of raise it to your, to your nose and you're, you're smelling it, you're tasting it. What are you doing? You're taking it into you, right? And that's the nature of the word that Paul is using here. He's saying that God wants us to take in one another in the body of Christ. There needs to be a close proximity. There's a geospatial relationship here. This is not a relational distance. This is not just coming to some sort of spiritual ceasefire. Paul's goal for us church is not to have sort of a spiritual detente. What, what does that word detente mean? What's well, a French word? Aren't they all, right? It's a French word. That means the releasing of tensions, the relaxing of hostilities. Those of you who grew up in the Cold War know that it was a popular term for the way that the superpowers would relate to each other, particularly the United States and the Soviet Union. And you might have heard oftentimes what we're exercising here is a political Detente. What does that mean? It means that there was enough of a diplomatic connection between the superpowers to keep them from launching nuclear missiles at each other. There's enough diplomatic conversation ongoing to avert military catastrophe. And so it was considered a success, political detente was considered a success if nobody killed each other, right? Oftentimes, that's what we mistake for peace in the local church. Paul is saying the goal in the exercise of our Christian freedoms is not spiritual detente. 
It's not an uneasy truth. It's not just deciding to, to stay out of each other's way. I, I'm fine, Pastor Paul, as long as I can get my way. As long as I can do what I want to do, and they can do what they want to do, and we sort of keep this uneasy distance, then we're good. And what that can so easily turn into, church, is how to subtly manipulate each other so that we can get our own way. And Paul says that's not the goal at all. The goal is to bring the body of Christ together in all of its dysfunction, in all of its differences, into a heart, to a fervent, heartfelt worship and praise of God, one voice. It's to live out the gospel in parable form so that people, the world, one another, when they look at us, even in the midst of our differences over disputable matters, can look at that us and say, there is something different there. That is a community that is marked by the gospel. That is a, that is a community that's, that's marked by the welcome of Jesus Christ. That is a community that's living out submission to one another for the sake of Jesus Christ. Guys, I think one of the things that we will look back on as a church, I don't mean necessarily this church, I just mean the global church, the evangelical church. I think we'll look, past, look back on these past two to three years as just a real stain on public Christian witness. Where Christians were having very public, very um, vocal throwdowns on disputable matters. And you may say, well, Pastor Paul, though they weren't disputable at all. They were critical. And I would say, that's the whole point. You see? That's the whole point. There might be some of us who have some real unfinished business in that season where we need to say, hey, brother, sister, I, I spoke this way or I said this thing or I did this and, man, I was, just, I was more interested in me than, than you. And, and I think as the body of Christ does that, it gives us the opportunity to speak not as one opinion, but as one voice, one gospel voice. Now, point number two, where do we look for this? Where, where, what's our model here? What's the ground of Christian liberty? Look at verse three. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. This is very interesting that Paul, all throughout the book of Romans, Jesus is obviously the hero. He's the center point of the story. Everything that Paul has talked about has to do with Jesus. He's talked about his death. Um, he's talked about justification, sanctification, adoption, predestination. He's talked about Jesus as a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. But this is the first time in the book of Romans where Paul holds up Jesus as an example. And it's almost like Paul has that, has that card in his pocket. He's got that chip in his pocket. And he's just waiting for the right moment to play that card, right? And it's a powerful card, right? Guys, let's be honest. When you play the Jesus card, that's a powerful card. Paul has the Jesus card here. And isn't it fascinating that he waits until this very moment to play it? 
And here's what Paul is simply saying. Jesus bore your reproaches, church, meaning he died in your place. He died for your sins. He died for your failings. He died for your weaknesses. In every way, Jesus was the stronger brother. And do you realize, guys, that if Jesus had stood on his principle of being the stronger brother, none of us would have eternal life. We would all be destined to hell. That, this is why the writer of, of, this is why Paul in Philippians says, Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be grasped or held onto, but he relinquished his rights, his status, and he became obedient to death, even death on a cross. What did Jesus say in the garden? It's like, I could call the, the angels right now. And they could take me away from this place. And guess what? He would have been perfectly justified in the sense that he was perfectly righteous. He had done nothing wrong. He was the strongest of the strong. But the Apostle Paul is telling us is that Jesus in his strength became weak for us. And Paul says, so we look to his example for what he did to model for us what we should do. This is why Paul can say, therefore, welcome each other. Now, verse 3, go back there for a second, is a quotation from Psalm 69. It's a messianic psalm. It's one of the most common psalms in all of the New Testament that the New Testament writers quote in terms of looking at a prophecy, the prediction of what Christ would do on our behalf. It's, 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 it's noted and quoted a number of times by various New Testament writers. And I think it's interesting that Paul quotes Psalm 69 to make his point about this is what Christ has done for us, so now we do it for each other. But listen to what he says in verse 4, almost as an aside, but I don't think it's an aside. Look at what he says in verse 4. He's just quoted Psalm 69. Then he says, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. Now, I want you to listen very carefully to how Paul is making his argument here. The reason Paul is so confident of his beliefs about Jesus is because of the word of God, is because of the scriptures. Jesus had appeared to Paul, absolutely. He had given Paul his commission. But do you realize the basis for Paul's ongoing faith is his trust of and knowledge of the scriptures and the word of God? See, not only does Paul appeal to Psalm 69, but look, look down in verses nine and following. Paul goes on to quote no less than five Old Testament passages. He, talk, he quotes 2 Samuel 23, Psalm 18, Psalm 117, Deuteronomy 32, Isaiah 11. Don't have time to unpack all those, right? And Paul's point here is to show it's always been a part of God's plan to unite Jews and Gentiles together through the death of his son, for the strong to become weak. That's what Paul is doing. But do you see what Paul is modeling for us? 
Please hear this, church. The fact that Paul is one of the strong, the fact that he has hope, is a direct function of Paul's knowledge of the Word of God. It's almost like Paul can't contain himself. You ask Paul a question, you present Paul an issue, and the Word of God just sort of comes tumbling out of him. It sort of spills over into everything he does. His knowledge and study of the Word of God from his youth to this point in time, under the operation of the Spirit, is the very thing Paul is drawing from to give for his own spiritual life and to give spiritual life to the church in Rome and, dare I say, to give spiritual life to the church here at Four Oaks. Guys, you've heard me say this before, but it, it was said of Paul, uh, of, of I think it was John Newton, who was a Puritan pastor, that if you, if you pricked his skin, he would bleed Bible, right? He, he was bibbling, was, was the word that was used for him. When you pricked Paul's skin, what you got was the full assurance of the word of God. Guys, there is a particular challenge we face as believers in this current culture. And the challenge is that we would not have merely a derivative knowledge of the word of God from someone else. Now, we do need to have teachers and pastors and podcasts and all those sorts of things. And those are, and I have those in my life and I derive from those, but principally, they're not the thing that I rely on or that you should rely on for the foundation of our biblical theological framework and foundation. We have to have an unmediated relationship with the Word of God. We have to have a place in our life, a posture in our life where we are receiving the very words of life. And guys, we're in a particularly vulnerable position, and I say we. Because being anchored in popular culture and being anchored in social media, we are in a very vulnerable position spiritually because we are drinking 24-7 from the fire hose of secular worldviews. We're drinking it and we don't even know it. We're on social media, we don't even know it. We're watching TV, we don't even know it. We're listening to this, we don't even know it. And when those things become just sort of this unmediated delusion to our lives, they become the bodies of knowledge and truth that we intuitively draw from and we don't even realize it. And by doing that, they will lead us to dramatically different places in terms of practice and conviction and our posture towards the world. Because there is a real call here, I think, in this passage as Christians, to know how to view all of life from the vantage point of the Word of God. You see, when we don't know the Word of God, we don't know Jesus. That's Paul's point here. All of the Scripture speaks to him. And when we have a very mediated okay, relationship with the Word of God, meaning it comes from others, it's not, it's not really primary in our own life, we get snips and pieces we ought not to be surprised when we feel, at times, an utter hopelessness. 
Do you ever have that experience when, when you're online or you've been exposed to some sort of media or movie and you just walk away feeling darkness? You walk away feeling this sense of hopelessness? It's because we're drinking from the wrong fountain. See, the, the, the moral of this story is not simply to shut it all off. That, that, that's not what we're talking about here. It's much more about what are you putting in? What are you drinking and imbibing? And this is why Paul says, look at verse 13. He says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. I love that phrase, hope in believing. Guys, hope in believing only comes through the Word of God. And I would say if we are going to be a faithful people, a strong people, to walk faithfully through these complex, difficult times, no one's saying they're not complex, they're not difficult. There's, 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 there's all of these matters of, quote-unquote, indifference and opinions and disputes, which, while they're not central to the gospel, aren't unimportant. We need wisdom. We need grace. Where does that come from? It has to come from the Word of God. Because as we kind of direct our hearts and begin our preparation to come to the table this morning, I want you just one more time just to hear what the testimony is from this passage about Jesus Christ. Paul says, Christ did not please himself. Paul says, Christ welcomed you. Christ became your servant. Christ is the root of Jesse who has come. And because of this, Four Oaks, we bring our freedoms, we bring our choices, we bring our, our conscience, and we say, Lord, shape these for the good of your church. Shape these for the care and love of my brothers and sisters. Shape these for the glory of your name that we might be one voice declaring the most important reality in the history of the universe. Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again.